New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. If you are like me, there are questions you wish you had asked of loved ones before they passed away. Questions about what mattered most in their life, what gave their life meaning, what did they regret, what did they love and value, and what was their greatest challenge, and how did they get through it? These are the kinds of questions you might have wished you had asked, and they are also the kind of questions that can be helpful in shedding light on your own deepest beliefs and dreams. Approaching and facing some of these essential questions and leaving them in a written document called a living will might be more important than any material possessions or money you pass on at your death. These are essential questions for leading a beautiful and meaningful life. And today, we'll be talking about leaving an ethical will with our guest, Rabbi Steve Leder. Steve Leder is Senior Rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. After receiving his degree in writing and graduating cum laude from Northwestern University, then spending time studying at Trinity College, Oxford University, Leder received a master's degree in Hebrew letters in 1986 and rabbinical ordination in 1987 from Hebrew Union College. Rabbi Steve Leder is the author of many books, including The Beauty of What Remains and For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Join us for the next hours. We explore the gifts we can bequeath to our loved ones beyond material possessions with our guest, Rabbi Steve Leder. I'm speaking with Rabbi Leder from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Steve, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Me too. I, I just in fully, fully was engrossed in your book and did so much writing myself. So um, first of all, I, I want to say, uh, what is an ethical will? And, and, and does this come from a Jewish tradition? It, it does. But let's begin with what it is not, because that helps us understand what it is. Uh, it is not a will 
that is part of an estate plan that most people eventually have. The tragic thing really about a traditional legal will is that that document is very often the final word from us to our loved ones when we're gone. And what is it really? It's a dry legalese boilerplate document, usually drafted by someone who barely knows us. And it's all about our stuff, who gets what and when and how much of it. And one of the saddest memories of my entire life, Justine, is after my father died, going down into the basement of my parents' home in Minneapolis and seeing all of his stuff in a heap on the floor. Nobody wanted it. And there's this very seductive pull in our culture to work and work and work so that we can buy and buy and buy and then leave these things and this money to our loved ones, hoping somehow the material will express the emotional and the spiritual. And I often say to people that that is like handing our loved ones a picture of food. It will not sustain them. It will not enrich them. It will not nourish them. It will not comfort them. What will? What do they really want when we're gone? They want us, our values, our expressions of love, our guidance, our support, our life lessons that are hard won as the result of flaws and failure. They want our words. I'll give you a, this is not a Jewish book, but I do make a few, I think, very interesting points that come from my tradition, one of which is the biblical word, the, the Hebrew word in the Bible for word and the word for thing is the same word. You cannot differentiate between the two, which means from a psycholinguistic perspective, words are real. They are concrete. They have heft and weight. They, they can build up. They can tear down. They can destroy. They can, they can lift us up. You know that phrase that magicians use, abracadabra? Mm. We all know that, right? What most people don't know is that's a phrase that was written in Aramaic, avra kedavra, by the sages of the Talmud. And it means, I create as I speak. Avra, I create. Kedabra, as I speak. We create worlds with our words. And it is our words that our loved ones are going to cherish when we're gone. So an ethical will is the bequeathing, not of our stuff, but of our hopes, dreams, blessings, values, life lessons to our loved ones. And it's a written document. It goes back to the 11th and 12th century in Italy and France. But most people have never heard of it. And most people never write one. 
Mm. There are two things about writing an ethical will. One is obviously you're leaving a real treasure for your loved ones when you're gone, something they really will cherish. But it is also, if you create it, it's an MRI of your life, of your inner life, that you can hold up to the light and say to yourself, okay, this is what I say my truth is. Am I living it? It's an opportunity. This is really not a book about death. This is a book about life, our lives, and whether or not our professed values and our lived values are in alignment. Or are we engaged mostly in kabuki in our lives? And that's a really important question. I think COVID has forced a lot of us to reevaluate many things. And now is the time to really concretize it with words. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. I'm reminded about words in indigenous cultures, too. They talk about, you know, words have power. So be careful about how you speak because they have power. So it goes through many, many traditions, what you're talking about, the power of words. I'm curious, and you you go through 12 questions that you, they're like prompts for us to think about and write about. And it's very curious to me that you begin with the one, um, what do you regret? So why do you start with this one, Steve? These questions, these 12 questions, when my editor asked me the same question you just asked me, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this particular order? Because they just, they just help a story unfold. And I began with regret because to answer the question, what do you regret, requires a few different things that are essential for the other 11 questions to follow. Number one, to answer truthfully about regret requires that we we break ourselves open, we crack ourselves open, and that we be vulnerable and humble. And that's the, the headspace I, as the writer, want everyone in as they proceed through this book. Because the book is 12 questions. I write an essay about each of the 12. I invited other people to respond. And then I kind of give a prompt to the, to the reader. The other thing about regret is while we think it's about the past, it's actually about the future. I, I sometimes say to people who come to see me as a rabbi with some degree of regret or shame about something they've done in the past. I say to them, I've given up all hope of a better past. So looking backward at regret is really an affirmation of the fact that we are not trapped in yesterday's ways. We are not shackled by the past. That the past, if properly embraced, is ultimately about a better present and a better future. And that's why regret is so instructive. Right. Well, yes. Uh, so you start us off with that openness and humbleness and 
And, and can I tell you something else? Please, I, please I, do. Let me, let me add something about regret that surprised me in the responses. Most people regret most, not something they did, but something they didn't do. An opportunity they didn't grasp, the time they didn't show up, the words they didn't say. And this too is a very powerful um, lesson and truth about our future. Someone asked me, one of those tricky journalist questions last week when the book launched, they said, well, okay, if you had to summarize your book in two words, what would it be? And I knew right away. I said, the two words would be, don't wait. Don't wait. And I think, I know that thinking deeply about regret is ultimately about not waiting, missing an opportunity. The two kinds of sins, there's a sin of commission, the things we do, and there's the sin of omission, the things we should have done but chose not to. Mm, Yes, yes. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Rabbi Steve Leder, and he is the author of For When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions, to tell a life story. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to either his website, steveleader.com, and he spells his last name L E D E R, or go to his Instagram at steve underscore leader, L E D E R. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening. To new dimensions. I'm here with Rabbi Steve Leader, and we're talking about an ethical will. And one of the questions that really grabbed me was, when was a time you led with your heart? And this is a part uh, that really struck me, Steve, because you mentioned how your father was not pleased with your calling to be a rabbi. And you write about one precious moment. And when any of us can be kind to someone or say something to someone, there might be a moment and it might be a passing moment. And we never know what kind of effect it has on that other person. 
and it might leave like a resounding effect. And there was someone in in your life, it was the father of your college girlfriend at the time, and he said to you, I would be so proud if my son decided to become a rabbi. Yes, and I'll never that forget just, it. That just like blew me away that you wrote that. And so say something. Uh, what are your thoughts that you can share about that moment in your life? Well, it's related to what we were discussing in the first segment, which is that most people regret something they didn't do. And generally, the reason they didn't do it is they didn't privilege their heart over their intellect, over their mind. It's not that we don't think things through at all, but it's a question of emphasis. When people subordinate the intellect and privilege their heart when making a major decision, and we see this from the respondent to this question in the book, it almost always leads to the most significant, meaningful, beautiful change in their entire lives. Very often it's the decision to marry a certain person or divorce a certain person or to have children or to continue with unplanned, not necessarily unwanted, but unplanned pregnancy, for example, or to move across the country or to begin a new career or to end a toxic relationship. These are all matters of the heart. And when I told my dad, you have to understand a little bit about my upbringing. So I, I grew up in a, in a working class family in Minneapolis. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Metal. And my junior year of college, my dad sat me down and he said, you know, Steve, we should talk about your future. And I, I, gotta, I think there are a couple of things you should consider. One, you could go to law school and then take over Leader Brothers. Or two, you could not go to law school and take over Leader Brothers. Like those were my two <laughs> career choices from my father's perspective. And I said to him, you know, dad, I really think I want to be a rabbi. And his response to me was, and my dad was, could be pretty harsh. He looked at me and he said, rabbis are beggars. Why would you do that? You'll have a thousand bosses. You'll never be appreciated. You'll never make any money. And I said to him, Dad, it's just, it's what I care about. It's what I want to do. And he kind of begrudgingly shrugged his shoulders. But then when I was sharing that with my then girlfriend at the time and her father, when we were taking a walk after a dinner, he said to me, I would be so proud if my son became a rabbi. And I, I realized, well, my goodness, not everyone thinks the same way. There are people who do understand this of my father's age and ilk. And, and I felt affirmed by an older man in a way I, I rarely did from my own father. So that, that was a pivotal moment, and it encouraged me to lead with my heart. This question is meant to encourage us to share with our loved ones the times we led with our heart because it will support them in their moment 
of choice. Wow, that's fantastic. And that just reminds me of this being affirmed by an older person. There's something you describe in one of the questions, and you were in a circle. The age wheel. The yes. age wheel. And yes. that, that was just, a, describe the age wheel, because that was uh, very important for us to hear. Yes. That was quite a moment. Uh, so I began doing what was then considered cutting-edge programming for men uh, in the early 1990s. And I put together a group of 100 men to get together once a month to talk about issues related to being a man that men would never discuss if there were women in the room. And for our second meeting, we did something called an age wheel. Now, there were three generations of men in this group from their 20s to their 80s. And we, we, we got in a circle beginning with the youngest person first, the next oldest person shoulder to shoulder with that man, the next, the next, the next, all the way around until we had a circle of 100 men by age. And that meant that when you were looking across the circle, you were looking at a man or a group of men who were either about 30 years older than you or 30 years younger than you. And then we got to ask questions of the men across the circle from us. And I asked the men across the circle from me who were in their 60s. I said to them, you know, in my brief time as a rabbi, it has already become apparent to me that men in their 60s and 70s are the most at peace, are the happiest men I know. Is there anything all of you can tell us over here in our 30s to help us achieve that state of mind without having to live all the years it takes to get around this circle to where you are standing? And I'm telling you, Justine, a dozen guys just looked at me and shook their heads no. In other words, you have to live this journey. I've always wanted to write a book called How to Have Your Second Child First, which is a great <laughs> title, but you can't write that book. There literally is no way to learn certain things without living them. And life is one of them. But knowing that, is its own resolution, is its own peace. It actually calmed me down in my 30s to know you can't get to the wisdom of a 65 or 70-year-old with, with some kind of shortcut. So relax, live it. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, there you go. Relax and, and live it and pay attention and watch the signals. Yeah. So here we are. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions that really surprised me, and um, it was, well, difficult in some way. It's like, have you ever cut someone out of your life? So why did you include that one? I included it because of my previous book, the one that came just before this, the penultimate book, which was called The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. And it, it's, a, it's a book about loss. 
And I put this question in about, have you ever cut someone out of your life? Because something I thought was extraordinarily rare turns out to be extraordinarily common. And by that, I mean, I put one little paragraph in the beauty of what remains that I thought would help a tiny handful of people. And it was about phone calls that go like this, Rabbi or Steve, I haven't talked to my mother in 10 years. I text her on her birthday. That's it. Uh, we've never had a good relationship. She's always made me feel horrible about myself. She's narcissistic and cold and withholding and manipulative. But she's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's got three to six months. And I'm thinking about going back to the Midwest to spend some time with her because I'm afraid I'm going to feel so guilty when she dies for cutting her out of my life. And my response to such people is, well, it's possible, but I doubt you're going to feel guilty. I think it's more likely you're going to be relieved. And they look at me, Justine, with these eyes as if to say, oh, how does the rabbi know? <laughs> Am I a bad person? <laughs> and I thought that this paragraph would be helpful to a small handful of people. And I got hundreds. Mm. And you know, for every email or message you get on Instagram, there yeah. are a thousand more behind it, which means there were tens of thousands of people for whom this was a very helpful little paragraph. Wow. And, and I realized in that moment, I need to explore this more deeply for people because most people actually have someone who is so toxic, so painful for them to be around, such a negative influence on them that they had to sever the relationship. Now, why is that a question in a book about our lives? Because it's another very important lesson for our loved ones about standing. There are times in life when you have to stand up for yourself. You have to have boundaries. You have to remove a malignancy in your heart and your soul. You know, when I was a kid, I was uh, at camp. I studied, took the class to become a lifeguard. And I grew up in Minnesota. We, we swim in lakes in Minnesota, so it wasn't so easy. And the first thing they teach you in lifeguard school is a little saying, which is throw, row, go. In other words, when a person is drowning, the first thing you do is you throw them a flotation device. That's the safest thing you can do as the lifeguard, and it's the fastest way to get them some help. If there's nothing to throw, then you row. You get in a boat, uh, you know, a skidoo, something, and you, you go out to them. The last thing you do is go. The last thing you do is get in the water and swim out to them. Why? Because when you approach a drowning person, the first thing they're going to do, their instinct for survival is to push you down under the water mm -hmm. so they can lift themselves up and you will drown. And this is also true of a toxic, narcissistic person in our lives. They will push you down and drown you. Don't go. So that's a, that's really powerful advice, and I I know that in the book you also talk about a very very personal uh, relationship in 
about your mother's father in, in the book, but um, we won't go into that right now. People will have to pick up the book to read that. I want to remind our read our, our listeners that I'm speaking with Rabbi Steve Leader, and he is the author of For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to tell a life story. And you can find him on Instagram. Go to at Steve underscore leader, L-E-D-E-R, Steve underscore leader. Or you can get there through newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Rabbi Steve Leader, and we're talking about ethical wills and writing down these thoughts and values and what is meaningful to us in our lives that we leave for our loved ones in this ethical will. And it also helps to really help us focus on what we believe in how we're living our own life. And one of the one of the questions is what is a good person? Wow. Okay, what is a good person? And that took me, Steve, I got a really strong response about this one. And I wrote about uh, for me, what a good person is is one who is on the path for self-awakening. And like somebody who is Im- embedded in the process of of that self awakening, and then you also in your book you also share um, Schopenhauer, the um, philosopher mm-hmm. Schopenhauer, who is asking this question: um, How is it that an individual can respond to pain and suffering? of another as though it were his own pain and suffering. And he goes into the answer. The answer is that compassion is the experience of a truth that you and that other are one, that the experience of separateness is secondary. And deeper than that, all life is one life, all consciousness one consciousness. And when we help another human being, we affirm that oneness of us all. And so that that to me is about waking up to the true reality that I, I, I'm reminded of uh, the physicist Max uh, Planck, who declared in 1931, you know, he says uh, he puts consciousness, uh, he says, I regard consciousness as fundamental, I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. And he goes on, he says, we cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing postulates consciousness. And that goes back to that Schopenhauer quote, yes. that, that compassion is the experience 
of of this kind of consciousness of all one. So, yeah, I know you have something to say about this. Uh, Please, please. Well, by the way, since you raised physics, uh, I happen to have written my rabbinical thesis on Einstein and his unified field theory was describing in matter what Schopenhauer is describing in the human experience. In other words, that there is one single unifying force or power behind all of existence. All literally is one. And a good person is is a person who transcends the self. You know, it's almost the the goal of what you described as a good person, Justine, is someone who is working on themselves to become a better human being. But for what purpose? Not a narcissistic purpose, but in order to feel more keenly the oneness of us all, the suffering and the joys of others. And it is actually the opposite of that that is a bad person right what is what is a bad person a bad person is a person who objectifies the other who does not see him or herself in the other who does not believe if you prick us we all bleed that's a bad person another way of thinking about a good person which i often share with people is a good person is a person who lives as a good ancestor. You know, we don't think of ourselves as ancestors, but we are, just not yet. You know, the uh, cleaning, the product of cleaning, cleaning products, that line called seventh generation? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you know where that comes from? Seventh generation? Oh, uh, it's an indigenous uh, Yes, it comes thought. from the, the, the law the great law of the Iroquois people. And the law says, whenever the elders make a decision for the tribe, they must consider the impact of that decision on the seventh generation to follow. Now imagine our world if every important decision was made based on the effect it would have on the seventh generation to follow. What a different world, city, state, nation, world we would have. Right. Well, you know, I'm thinking that I believe that we uh, are the seventh generation of the founding of the United States. And so here we are, we're grappling. Oh, my goodness, we're grappling with our founding principles right now mm-hmm. it's amazing that it's mm-hmm. kind of come up and is so uh rampant and so that the discussions are are out there right now and are you a good ancestor now that that's a meaningful life and and you know the other thing about good and bad or good and evil which is what really animates our lives and this is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I may be the only person on earth who actually read all three of the Gulag trilogy. Wow. <laughs> but in one of them, he makes the point. He says, the line between good and evil is not a line between us and them. It's a line that runs down the middle of every single one of us. And I would add that 
each of us every day has to decide many times during that day which side of the line we're going to be on. Mm. And it's that dichotomous tension, the pull to be to, to the, the pull to be better off and the versus the pull to be better. The pull to be absorbed with the self versus the pull to see the oneness and the self in the other. It's this dichotomous tension that animates all of life itself. You know, that, that really takes me, Steve, to, I, I just recently had an interview with mythologist Michael Mead. And uh, we were talking about love, and this is one of one of your questions: What is love? And we brought up the poem um, by uh, Rumi, as translated by Coleman Barks. And this is the poem: If you want what visible reality can give, you are an employee. If you want the unseen world, you're not living your truth. Both wishes are foolish. But you'll be forgiven for forgetting that what you really want is love's confusing joy. And, and here he's, he's really describing, and Michael Mead and I talked about this, he's describing that, that third way that's beyond the, the opposites of yes and no and good yes. and bad. Life, and Life is non-binary. Yes. And he goes on to say, when I said um, that it occurs to me that love is bigger than either or, it's a, it's a universal glue. And he says here, I'm going to read because I transcribed this. He says, love is transcendent. You transcend the limitations. When love is alive in someone, they're not just an employee. They're not an employee of anyone. They're not holding on to the limited, measurable, solid rock, real world. They're in love. Everything is fluid. I love that. Everything is fluid. When someone is in love, they're not simply on a bigger, brighter, upper side. They haven't simply been lifted up in the clouds because love, in a certain sense, needs a body. And you write about this part in, yes. in your people who have responded to you. Love has its own darkness. It's yes. a light and a darkness. As they say, love hurts while it beautifies. So you, that's what, what is contained in your book. And it just yes. reminded me of this conversation that I had. What is love? It is sacrifice. Ah, uh, you know, the, the biblical word for sacrifice comes from the same family of words as relative, as to draw near, as to gather in, as to be close. People believe that we sacrifice because we love someone. I believe the opposite is true. We love someone because we sacrifice for them. I will tell you the most intimate thing I have ever done with my wife was empty her drains after her double mastectomy. That's intimacy. That's love. Love is down 
in the muck together. Love is the transcendence of the self. Love is sacrifice of the self because the other defines you. Steve, you also mentioned something that made me cry. You mentioned, and this is about love again, love in practice. And um, this is the story of Rosie, your little poodle. And if you could briefly share that that with us, because I just, it made me cry. We've always had two poodles, one younger, one older, and we keep sort of advancing the generations. And Rosie was our older poodle. She was 17, almost 18 years old when uh, we euthanized her. And I really loved this dog. And she not, grew up with your children. She, she she was a part of our family. She was a third child in a way. And I'm not anthropomorphizing her. I'm saying that we, she was a part of the fabric of the leader family and, and, a, and a constant companion. And the beautiful thing about dogs is they're, they're I can't say they're love because we, we can't really understand their emotions, but their connection to us is based only on uh, non-material things. They don't care if we live out of a shopping cart or a tent or a palace. Uh, they don't care what our IQ is or our GPA or our net worth. It's completely irrelevant to them. So I, I was very, very ill twice in my life. Once when I returned from India uh, with a terrible <laughs> gastric issue and it lasted for months and another time after spinal surgery and rosie laid by my side every minute of every day i was recuperating and that's love i i uh, that's love thank you so much i'm here with rabbi steve leader and he is the author of for you when i am gone and if you want to know more about him you can go to his instagram at steve underscore leader spelled l-e-d-e-r or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org i'm justine willis toms you're listening to new dimensions I'm here with Rabbi Steve Leader, and 
We're talking about ethical wills and how we leave them behind for our loved ones, but they also inform our present life. And um, one of the ones is, what is good advice? And you say, oh, you gave us the assignment. What are the top five sayings that encapsulates and uh, the accrued wisdom of your life experience. And I got my five down. I loved it. I loved it. But one of my five is also my epitaph. And this is this is the underlying value in my life. It's my North Star. And it comes from my late husband, This these words that we uh, shared in our book, True Work, Doing What You Love and Loving What You Do. And it came up in that context. And it is that whatever you give your fullness to will take you where you need to go. And I mean, I, I have it up on my wall. It's like, I mean, it informs everything in my life. And I just, I was so appreciative of this particular one. And I remember one of the the ones that responded to this, which really moved me, was uh, Robin Williams. We remember him. He was a comic. He was an actor. He just entertained us and delighted us for his whole life. And he had some demons, it turned out, that we didn't know about. And his quote is, Everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Yes. Be kind anyway. Yes. It, uh, now empathy. that that empathy. blew my socks off, huh? Empathy, empathy, empathy. Yeah. You know, I say it a little differently. Um, when people come to me angry about another person, I say, you know, we meet everyone in the second chapter of their life. We have no idea what happened in the first chapter, and we have no idea what's going to happen in the third chapter. So let's pause and find our empathy for whatever it was in chapter one that created the person we are now meeting in chapter two. And let's be hopeful for chapter three. And that's, a beautiful way to engage with other people. And I would say, but, and now I'm going to push back on you a little bit. I don't think that that saying is actually far be it for me to say what your epitaph should be. But I think that that's what guided you toward your deepest values. So what is it that you gave yourself fully over to that took you to where you belong for you? Oh, that's so wonderful, Steve. You you are, are taking me deeper. And this is kind of what the book is about. It's like, okay, so how do I, how you're saying, how do I get there? What yes. do I value you? This is where you push us. Yes. This is really, it's so valuable. The questions you ask of me and ask of others that I will have to pay attention to and have to go back in there and say, okay, how, how, if I'm giving my fullness, what did it lead to where and what do I value? So this is so. It's ultimately should be an exercise in essentialism Mm -hmm. in the, in the stripping away. 
because for example, when, it, what is your epitaph? What would you like it to be? They only give you uh, a headstone. The, the, the cemeteries give you 15 characters per line and four lines total. You have 60 characters to distill the meaning and purpose of your life for your loved ones. It's going to be carved in stone. Now what? What is it? And do you know what almost everyone says? Loving wife, mother, grandmother, sister, friend. It always comes down to the tiny handful of relationships. And none of us have more than a tiny handful of, of people in our inner, inner lives. Yeah, there but you go. But do we live that way? Do That's we live the it? question. Yeah. That's it. So one of the ones, how do you want to be remembered? And I remember that you got some advice from a, a hospital chaplain. And I, I love this because I live in senior housing. And he he says something about how how to look at at people. So share share that with us. I think this us. again is about empathy rather than othering. So when I'm standing in the hallway of a hospital room, going in to visit an elderly patient, I remind myself, now when you go in there and look at them, don't just see them as they are. See them as they were at 25 years old. See her dancing at her wedding, twirling in the air, beautiful, you know, see him as a young man, shirtless, rushing into the surf, throwing his newborn baby up in the air and catching him. See them and relate to them, not as a person whose life has essentially ended, but with all the dignity and fascination and kindness and empathy of a fully alive human being. You know, we infantilize elderly people. Mm -hmm. We talk loudly to them. We talk slowly to them. We gesture. And that is objectification. And by the way, I also do this when I'm standing in line at the grocery store, very impatient with the woman in her cart, pulling out coupon after coupon to see if it's still valid and if she can get 15 cents off of her Velveeta cheese. I'm angry. And then I think to myself, wait a minute. How, who was she 30 years, 40 years ago? How did she get to where she is? How would I want to be treated if I was in that scooter with my coupons? And it, it really changes my perspective on life. It lessens my anxiety. It makes me a more humane human being. And that's a good person. A good person is a humane human being, which requires effort. One of the, and how do you want to be remembered? One of the uh, persons um, wrote, and I, I said, wow, this is a really good one. I really, I wrote this one down because I really resonated with it. Uh, they said, I want them, meaning their family, to remember what makes them happy. Whatever big or small moments we shared together that made them feel good. I do not need them to remember my greatness or my accomplishments. 
I want them to feel the private feelings we shared. I just said yes to that one. Well, and that's how we started. It's never our resume or our net worth or our zip code or where we went to college or where our grandchildren go to college. Never. It's never the resume that really lives in the hearts of our loved ones. It's those few or many beautiful, intimate, private moments of real, real connection and love and real sacrifice. Mm, mm. So this whole experience of going through these 12 essential questions that you put out, these are really love letters to the people uh, we love most and we care most and what we want to leave. Uh, So any comment on that? It's only a love letter if we're living that truth. If these letters are in any way phony, to put some kind of veneer on our legacy that we would prefer over our actual legacy to our loved ones when we're gone, then the real value of this book will be the opportunity to change our lives, to examine our lives and live more fully aligned with truths we really hold most dear. And that is a gift to ourselves and to our loved ones when we're gone. Yes. Authentically living our truth. You know, COVID wasn't worth the death of a million Americans, but neither was it worth less if it helped encourage the rest of us to reevaluate and examine our lives and change some things about our lives and our priorities. You know, I often say, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. And let's not, this book is also intended to help us not come out of the hell of COVID empty handed. Let's really take the opportunity to examine and change our lives. Oh, wow. Well, with that, I I just thank you so much, um, Steve, for for being with us today and and helping us to look at what we value and to encourage us to write it down. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's something about taking it out of our heads and actually the physicality of writing it down. So uh, I thank you for helping us with that. So with that, I, I've been speaking with Rabbi Steve Leader, and he's a rabbi of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles and the author of many books, including The Beauty of What Remains and For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And if you want to know more about him, you can go to his website, Steve leader.com. He spells his last name L-E-D-E-R. Or you can go to his Instagram at Steve underscore leader, L-E-D-E-R. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,700. 
62. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.